0: And welcome to today's Pina Wisdom Stories, where we get to listen in on wisdom that can only be earned by professional permaculturists with 20 plus years of experience working within the permaculture framework. Pina Wisdom Stories gives us all a chance to hear from Pina diplomates, board members and other pioneers from the early days of permaculture's development. We seek to make the connection between the elders in our field of study and permaculture enthusiasts everywhere on Earth. Hello, and I am Jesse and I'll be hosting today's conversation, which should last about 90 minutes. Uh, we are live, so please leave any comments in the chat and I can feed them to our guests and they may even be able to see them as we go as well. And today we are honored to feature Bob Randall. Hello, Bob, and welcome. I'm gonna read your bio here. So if anything's wrong, feel free to correct me. Bob Randall is the current PINA board secretary since 2017 and Diploma—excuse uh, me, PINA diploma holder in permaculture site design and permaculture education. With a doctorate in ecological anthropology, Bob has taught and studied food systems across the earth. In 1979, Bob first read Permaculture One and began to implement its teachings. In 1987, he quit academic life and became a professional food activist first as a community garden specialist at a hunger fighting agency. And then seven years later, as executive director of a new nonprofit, Urban Harvest Inc, which we'll talk about today. And that's out of Houston, Texas. Since 1996, he has been a main teacher and facilitator for PDCs in the Houston area. Under his 14 year leadership, Urban Harvest grew from nothing to an 800,000 per year budget when he retired in 2008. And we shall see in today's presentation that that's still growing. Um, So today we discuss how using permaculture design, principles and ethics, helped in the formation and growth of the nonprofit Urban Harvest and how you can apply some of these time-tested methods to your businesses and permaculture activism. Welcome, Bob, it's great to have you.
1: Hello, Jesse.
0: We're so excited. So just give us a sense, you're in Houston, what's the weather like today? How's it out there?
1: Um, It's a little bit cooler than it's been, uh, probably down in the low 90s.
0: Okay, that's not bad for this time of year for Houston, as I gather. Bob, we're really excited to have you. I know you have a fantastic presentation that everybody's just going to love. It's it's like a distilled permaculture course unto itself. So I'll just let you get on to it and then I can interrupt with questions or throw you some chat questions as we go. Um, but if you'd want to share your screen, I'm ready for you.
1: I'll see if I can figure out how to do it. It says stop sharing. So Oh,
0: oh you know what? I think I have it actually. So you're good to go. I'll just uh, push this over and then you can go. You can make it big, and I see it on my end, so you're good.
1: Right. Okay, good. So let's do... Yeah, uh, I'm seeing an icon. Okay, maybe... Yeah, it
0: looks like... I see your um, PowerPoint. It's just small still. Like, I see all those side pictures. Lately. Yeah. But take your time. No no worries at all.
1: But I, it's... Uh, I don't, sorry, I can't see how to, the, uh, um,
0: what is it, just uh, play or? No,
1: sure. it, uh, it's like, I'm looking at your screen rather than mine. That's,
0: oh, well, that's, that's a problem here. Uh, let's go back to this. Does this help at all? If I do this and then you can make your slides. Yeah, okay, okay. Now you can make it big. And then once you do that, I'll transition it back over.
1: Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Yeah, we can edit we can edit yeah, these things. Now on. we're now we're in sh- good okay.
0: shape. Okay, cool. So let's, yeah uh, yeah, that's perfect. I see that.
1: All, all right. right. So um I'm I'm gonna chat about really three things today. Uh you're you're hearing me all right, okay?
0: Yep, you sound great.
1: Okay. So um, I'm gonna chat about three things. I'm gonna talk a little bit about how I got onto this journey, and but very shortly. And then I'm gonna talk about uh, two organizations in the Houston area that I've been uh, associated with now for a good part of my life, uh, Urban Harvest and Ola and particularly Urban Harvest. And uh, then I'm gonna talk about what I learned about designing nonprofit organizations. And uh, that's where I'm using permaculture design um, uh, principles to uh, actually create permaculture supporting organizations. Um, So uh, what I think is this, that the thing that's really interesting about permaculture is this idea that despite whatever the heck the problems are, there's almost always a way with a better design to get w- much further than you otherwise would have been able to do. And uh, so um, the basic idea here is this, that, um, that, the, um, that every kind of permaculture sort of activity you might wanna do, whether it's businesses or families, or any kind of group at all, it's all going to be much easier if people are mostly doing permaculture around you. And so you need organization that will help produce that. The um, That's the basic idea. It's an ecosystems thing. Tree, trees are much better in forests than in lawns. It's much harder to grow a tree in a lawn than it is in a forest. Uh, so um, each of us can do permaculture better uh, if we are part of that system. And so the idea is to create an organization that can support permaculture across an area. So um, I'm going to use this thing from uh, four groups, basically, that I've been part of. Uh, the Interfaith Hunger Coalition, Urban Harvest, Organic Horticulture Benefits Alliance, OBA and Pina. I'm not going to really talk much about Pina, uh, at least in the beginning. Um, The um, main thing, though, is that I stopped being part of urban harvest management uh, in 2008 when I retired. And uh, so I continue to support them. But what I'm going to be talking about today is is design of urban harvest before I retired. Uh, since then, other people have been doing it, and uh, that's not what I'm really talking about. Um, but anyway, none, none of these organizations necessarily re- reflect these ideas. They're all uh, organizations, and they have their own opinions about whatever. And uh, I'm simply telling you about my own observations. Now, um, so this is a thought experiment. It's a way of looking at organizations in order to make them work better. And I, my experience is mainly with nonprofits. Uh, I have some experience with many of these other ones, like for profits and not profitables, and many, and certainly government. And, education efforts. But uh, regardless of what the organization is that you're talking about, you're all going to do better if we have a permaculture uh, neighborhood. And so that's mainly the idea um i uh got started doing this and uh, we were all asked to talk a little bit about how we got into this so i was raised in a small town in new jersey uh 1940s and 1950s um right after world war ii and and so on got interested in chemistry and uh worked a bunch on while I was in college on food chemistry and and pesticides um, and because I was interested in food chemistry issues. And then I ran into Rachel Carson and ecology pretty much started around 1952 as a formal subject. And I got really interested in that and moved away from all of that. And uh, in the 1960s, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in West Africa, and uh, the scale of problems was just staggering. Uh, that's the shortest way of saying it. Um, so wind up uh, becoming an anthropology graduate student specializing in food systems ecology at Cal Berkeley. And that was in the late 60s. And then Nancy and I, uh, we uh, went to the Philippines and did research uh, in the island chain between Mindanao and Borneo. And there, uh, was just like the Sahara basically, there was lots of destruction going on of the ecosystems. And um, the very poor were doing this themselves because of basically much bigger patterns that really global. Um, so, there's some pictures of me uh, back in Nigeria in 1964, um, and there in the Philippines in 72 and 80. And these things were largely well off the grid in most ways. And uh, this is what the Sahara looked like on the edge of the Sahara. Uh, about 1965, this is what we were dealing with, and uh, this is what we were dealing with in the Philippines, uh, explosives fishing of coral reefs. And uh, I wrote this article in 1983 about that, but uh, you know, it uh, you can't run into these things without finding something like permaculture attractive. Um, I taught in universities and several different places and wound up in Texas. And uh, 1978 ran into an ad about Permaculture One, got it, uh, read it, said, wow, this is it. This person is actually trying to do something about the problem rather than just study it. And uh, in Texas, Bill Mollison showed up here in the late 80s and early 90s. And we met him three different times and talked with him fairly extensively. So one of the things we were doing was seeing how much food we could produce on small amount of land. And uh, this is just to give you an example of, of that. Basically, uh, this climate, this place, there's just tremendous opportunity year round to grow uh, all sorts of things. So one of the things that happened was that we uh, clearly were heading in a very bad direction. Uh, and the question was, how could you do something about it? I know how I can do something myself about my own situation, but it's much better if we have organizations that help us do it. So. Uh, the question was, uh, We basically my idea was that you need to uh, organize a bunch of diverse talents to reverse the course, which aren't going to do it just uh, individually. And uh, eventually I came to see that the organizations needed to be designed. So um, that was basically where I got to. Um, I thought I'd stop about here. Uh, Jesse, if you've got
0: a. Yeah, let me jump in. Um, I'm mostly fascinated just because I think Bill Mollison is a sort of a raconteur, you know, and such a fascinating character. I'm kind of curious, what was it like when you first met him? What was the scene like in Houston? How many people were around? And would you say that Bill being there really galvanized the beginning of Urban Harvest or how would you characterize that?
1: Well yeah it's good uh, when Bill came here uh, he um, he did a uh, he gave a talk at the Museum of Natural Sciences and it was a packed audience uh, with probably 120 people there and we put a set a list around, for people to sign up, and, and though that's pre-internet day, so people put their phone numbers if they were bold. Um, and out of that, we formed a group of people that decided to study permaculture. We, about once a month, we had something called Seeds: Sustaining the Earth Through Environmental Design. And uh, eventually, we even tried to build a seven-acre permaculture. Uh, place in in Houston, which was a bit more than we knew how to deal with and didn't really work. But that's what we did. Yeah. Bill, Bill really uh, inspired us. Uh, And some of the people I'm still working with some of the people that he inspired.
0: Yeah. And then that was just a quick talk. Did he come and teach PDCs in the area as well?
1: He taught PDCs up in uh, three pla- parts of Texas, not in Houston. Okay. Some of his students taught PDCs around around Houston. Um, I was working at the time. Uh, we'll get to that in a bit. But I was at the Interfaith Hunger Coalition at that by that point. I really didn't have the time or the money to uh, actually take the PDC from him took it from one of his students, Patricia Michael. Yeah. And then the other thing I'm kind
0: of curious about is just the history of organic gardening, because that was one of the big things that you're working on at this stage. Was yeah. that was that well known at the time? Were people like, what is that? Why? What's the point? Or what was the attitude?
1: Well, well known is kind of hard to say, but um, they, there had been, there was a group called Texas Roots, which I was a member of that was uh interested in promoting organic methods and we had a series of classes and there was a famous founder of organics in texas named uh, uh malcolm beck in san antonio and uh jim hightower was the uh, ag secretary for the whole state in that point and he was organic in his approach and uh the um, and we had started the first organic food store in Houston back around 1980 called Street Farmers Co-op. Oh, cool. And uh, we bought our food from a organization in, um, <laughs> in Austin, which eventually became Whole Foods. <laughs> uh, at the time, it was just a rinky-dink operation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure.
0: That's awesome. Anyway. Cool. Yeah.
1: I get going here. Well, yeah, no,
0: thanks for the history and let's keep on rolling here.
1: Yeah, so um, it turns out that Houston has every bit as much of our environmental problems as both the Philippines and Africa, uh, just different ones. Um, Figured out that uh, the metro Houston area, which is 5 million, 6 million residents at this point, Um, They eat about 16,000 tons of food a day or or, um, throw it out, one or the other. And um, that's a huge amount of food. And moreover, that uh, the bottom 3.8%, 4% of the population are not getting enough calories. That's pretty much today. Back around 1990, uh, that was about double that amount because of the economic issues in Texas. And um, but broadly speaking, uh, the number of people that need emergency food assistance is runs of right now about 220,000 people, and if you lined them all up on a freeway, it would be 63 miles long. Wow. That's a one and a, one and a half feet per person. Jeez. Half of them would be children. So, uh, and that's pretty much true in almost every American city. That the bottom three point eight percent of the income is in that. And it's ridiculous that this is the case because Houston's sprawl. It's got a lot of land, and food grows here so easily. Um, So how do you do it? We had uh, somebody who spit an orange pit and created a tree that had 1,700 oranges on it. Wow. Like, you know, they didn't even try to grow the thing. They (laughs) just kill it. Um, So how do you change the culture from where it is with that kind of... uh, nastiness to uh something where people get to eat and do it in an ecologically sensible way so uh that's the challenge so 1987 uh i quit teaching in universities i taught for a year 2011 as a substitute uh, after i retired but still um quit academics and started trying to actually implement some of these ideas. And so we uh, went to work with the Interfaith Hunger Coalition, um, um, this organization that was trying to do community gardens that fed the hungry. And uh, we started with nothing at all. We didn't have a telephone. Uh, In fact, the telephone was uh, gotten because of a donation from the Houston Rockets. And uh, we had skills and we had willingness to work and care, but we didn't uh, have any uh, resources. Uh, This was a a quote that somebody told a TV um, interviewer uh up there in one of the wards uh and i always remember this working out here in the hot sun doesn't bother me no what bothers me is that families in this neighborhood are eating out of dumpsters um and um that was the kind of thing that motivated this um and we managed to get quite a lot of people who cared about these issues and uh This was HIV time when AIDS was running wild and a lot of people uh, not just in low-income neighborhoods that were running into problems with eating. And um, so anyway, we did what we could. We publicized organic gardens that could help people. Um, We... uh, made made as much of an effort as we could to get people behind an effort to produce more food locally and uh seven years later started urban harvest so uh, basically this whole idea was to grow some food locally And the reason was we gradually realized was that the entire city was basically at risk, not just poor people. Uh, Started looking at how we got food, where it came from, and under what conditions. And we began to see that the price of food and how good it is and how available it is are really vulnerable to all sorts of disruptions. And we, we had some minor ones during Hurricane Harvey when it hit. uh, No food came in for a couple of weeks. And uh, you're talking about millions of people who depend on this kind of crazy system we have. Um, So anyway, that's what uh, started really concerning us and still does. Um, It's the fourth biggest city in the US. Um, it has an area that's over 100 miles in diameter. And we thought we should be able to reach everybody. That was what we were aiming at, a very ambitious. And we were had, therefore, to connect with everybody who would help, every organization that would help, uh, and so on. So we added a variety of people that became advocates for urban harvest. And uh, that woman in the center was a nationally known environmentalist uh, and a lot of skill sets. So that's what we did. Uh, We started this. And the idea was broadly the same one as trying to uh, bring back a forest. Um, You need. Get set it up so there's multiple yields, lots of diversity and connected functions. It's the same thing as what you do with an ecosystem. You have to do the same thing with an organization. And the sector energy that we really focused on was something called supporters. Uh, We figured out that supporters will often give you help, give you money, give you their time and labor, give you their skills, their ideas, if you can figure out how to uh, bring them in and get them working on the problem. So same idea as catching water in a cistern. And they don't have to be paid much money or any at all. They might even give you money if uh you are doing something that work does good work and they believe in it so uh that's basically what we think they need to do uh, they will want to they need to want to help implement the vision and uh, so that means you have to have, have be clear about what your goals are and what, will, what support you need to make it happen and then you obviously need to actually get that done Um, and uh, people what they want to do is contribute their help if they think it is accomplishing something useful in a a sensible way so we started adding all kinds of people with skills and uh And we had this, uh, this is one board workshop that we did. That was just a board and some staff. And it wasn't even all of them, but uh, we believed in big board. And so we had some permaculture people in there. And uh, board officers, farmers market advocates, uh, staff fundraisers, and a tremendous number of committees. And they were empowered to come up with ideas and how they were going to get there and how to do it and when to do it and so on and so on. And uh, these are just some of the skill sets and things they offered. They're not anywhere near all of it. But uh, that's what we had. And uh, the main thing I would just try to say is that although they tell you you want to be able to explain this in an elevator, I would much rather uh, explain it in three pages. Uh, It's not... If somebody isn't interested in three pages, they're probably not going to be a good supporter. So... uh, we had lots of people who weren't on the board, and we gave five year certificates to 450 people during the time I was there. Wow! And uh, this is in the Smithsonian book of next to Versailles and the Ming Dynasty Gardens. Wow, uh, yep, <laughs> that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, when it comes to, you know, not making it be an easy elevator pitch, it's sort of like with the metaphor of the forest, it's like, can you explain all the functionality of a forest in an elevator ride? Well, probably not. There's a lot of complexity going on within that, as you see with the board and all the different staff members. And it reminds me a little bit of Pina, right? Like a lot of some staff, some people working on funding, some people in the board, you know, all synergistically working together to make this thing work. And I don't imagine how it could possibly work without each of those components.
1: Yeah, and uh, yeah, a joke I've told is that you ask a farmer, a permaculture farmer, what he what they do, and they don't say, "Well, I grow tomatoes." Mm. Uh, you know, it's just not. Um, you know, it's a completely wrong approach. It, it may be work for a corporation, but I don't think it works for. Uh, non-profits very well. Um, So uh, this is what we came up with of what it was we were trying to do. So I said, don't ask me what it, you know, um, what it is in an elevator, but um, we were trying to teach uh, youth and any kind of adult, whether they were novices or or professionals. And uh, Community and school gardens, gardening classes. At one point, we were offering 100 classes a year. And uh, I think they're down to like 70 or something now, but it's um, gums up and down.
0: Just real quick Uh, on that, Bob, were those classes offered within like the school district or outside or kind of both? No,
1: they were independent classes through mostly adult classes through the school district. There were cl- there were also classes taught, uh, through the schools program, but okay. this was, this was all taught basically through urban harvest or, uh, pro- or adult proprietary learning. Cool. And, uh, wow. but we, uh, we did a fruit tree sale, a weekly farmer's market, an organic green businesses landscaper's education effort, and um, that one was spun off in 2009, became OBA Incorporated. Uh, we published all sorts of stuff. Some of this in days when the internet wasn't really available to most people, but uh, we published stuff of many sorts. Um, Our board president uh, wrote a bunch of books on uh, habitat landscaping. And uh, there's a school and youth gardening book. Um, I've written many gardening books, and the latest one being 2019. Um, That one's so far sold about. (laughs) 3,200 <laughs> copies uh, at 50 to $75 a piece. So,
0: hey, that's pretty good. Um,
1: and um, we published things in places where it would get attention by uh, the more affluent environmentalists uh, uh, in various parts of the country. Um, so... Taught a lot of classes, um, and lots of kinds of community gardens and learned how to do it. That's a habitat garden in the bottom right. Um, There's a lot of learning curve at places like inner city schools.
0: Oh, that's, that's beautiful.
1: Yeah, this one actually won a national award. Oh. And uh, Janet Reno who was then the attorney general, I guess under Governor uh, President Clinton. Um, I think that's why, uh, yeah, I think she came and toured this garden, I think with a girl actually. Wow. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, it is an impressive drawing, you know. It is especially if you saw this neighborhood which is, does not look like it's full of flowers and kites and it's uh, one of the most dense uh neighborhoods in all of texas so it's uh, pretty anyway this was a landscaper education effort which also morphed into green businesses and uh uh, this became an independent in 2009. Urban Harvest decided that it was hard to manage, I think, and so I've been on the board of OBA since then as well. And I'm actually giving a talk for OBA in a couple of weeks. And um, but anyway, uh, this has been very good at at educating all sorts of organizations that do landscaping about. And, uh, and sometimes farms um, and certainly green businesses, nurseries and things like that. Uh, we started a fruit tree sale of all the best kinds of fruit trees that we'd already figured out would actually grow here. And it took us about 10, 12 years. we actually got up to a four hour sales of $160,000. Wow! And mind you, you don't do this with staff. You do this with volunteers. Wow! Um, And there's a (laughs) rice football stadium and uh, fruit trees. Uh, First Super Bowl was there, actually. Anyway. That's um, a.
0: That's a great uh, mashup between American sports culture and American permaculture.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it's, you, you know, the permaculture ethos is to use whatever stuff is lying around. And <laughs> this is a football stadium. It wasn't being used in uh, whatever, what was it February? Rice hasn't been competing in football in February or whatever. So, right. Um, anyway. So, and then we figured out how to team teach permaculture, which meant it possible to keep doing it year after year. And this this fall will be the 25th year of the PDC. So that's kind of cool in itself. Uh, This is some of the early scenes. Uh, We have a number of remote permaculture sites outside the city area. Is a more, this is a rural farm, animal animal farm, permaculture center. And uh, anyhow, uh, the uh, fact of the matter is, though, that how do you get people to know about these opportunities? And one of the things is that a lot of people that, wouldn't even think about trying to garden or do something like that, I really do like to eat quality food, turns out. And so we, the farmer's market has a real useful thing. And we got the first one started that was a true farmer's market since the 1930s, meaning we made sure the people actually were growing what they were selling. As opposed to just buying it in bulk and and packaging it off as if they had grown it. Yeah. And uh, the we ended up having live music and actually one band told me that they had they made more money at our farmers market than they did at their gigs. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so. Um, This all sorts of neat things happened as a result of this. Uh, Some of this is old pictures. Some of it is relatively new, the farmers market, and uh, and this was essentially the result of what we did uh, in terms of income. It's certainly uncalculable in terms of how it affected other people's income or all the other benefits of it. But that's the gross revenues. I looked up the gross revenues since I retired. I knew what they were up to 2008 and had some idea what they had been since. But you can see that uh, we started with basically nothing. And there you are, at uh, managed uh, up in over a million five the last few years. So uh, that's a lot of staff, a lot of ability. Uh, obviously, you can waste money or spend money, but um, it's, it's an indication that you can impact people's lives in a much more um, effective way if you have a lot more resources to do it with. So I'm gonna pause for a bit if there's some questions or ideas and uh, then I will just um, get into how we sort of some of the aspects of how we did it, especially how we use permaculture to do it.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's the those are the questions I want to hear the answers to. Um, we don't have any in the chat yet. If anybody's watching live, feel free to leave a ch- uh, question for Bob about any of this. Um, I, I'm curious about the team teaching the PDC. First of all, it's amazing that you've been able to do that for, it sounds like, 25 years straight. Uh, I don't know how many students that might be, but it seems like that would be a pretty significant number of students over those years.
1: Yeah, well, uh, it is, uh, I is. We've graduated uh, uh, something close to about 200. Okay. But uh, we've had probably... Well, easily a thousand probably have taken some aspects of it. Okay, so
0: that's amazing. Um, <clears throat> and what are the keys to that? To keeping not only to team teaching, but to keeping it going without a teacher getting burnt out, let's say, or or maybe they're on vacation mm-hmm. and they can't do it. What strategies might you offer?
1: Well, uh, there's several different ones. Is that the way we we did it various ways but we kept redesigning it till we got something that was really sustainable and so what that amounts to is that we we teach the pdc um on sunday afternoons or sundays the whole day uh uh but only sundays and um We teach it in five modules, so that runs from, um, and and the first module is an introductory module of two Sundays. So first of all, a little bit of live experience of what this is. So they get to hear some classes walking around the piece of permaculture and uh, showing how various aspects of the design work. And then uh, there is a kind of sit down class, slides and things of things that are harder to show in a four hours or so in a yard. And um, th- that talks about sort of the history of permaculture and some of the design features of it. And uh, uh, what the what the full course is. So it's just an introductory, and that's the first module. And you have to take that. And you can't take any of the other modules. Then there's three other modules that are sort of broken down by when they occur, fall, winter, spring, and the fall one is designing bountiful gardens through permaculture. The winter one is greening our homes and communities through permaculture, and the Spring one is restoring nature through permaculture. And uh, so that you can take those in any order and not necessarily in the same year if, it's, if that's the way your schedule works. And if you complete those four modules, you can then do the design tutorial, in which you have to attack a problem you're interested in using permaculture uh, principles. That's awesome. Um, and then you and you have a party and graduate that's great that's uh, kind of
0: it's it's like a it's kind of like the weekend pdc i think that a lot of teachers are doing now but it's it it's a different variation of that that i think makes a lot of sense i like that it people can take a module when their schedule allows and then just add them all up at a certain point and be like okay i'm ready for the project
1: yeah, it, that's that's basically it. And then the second part of that is that we use a very large number of teachers, probably in excess of twenty, to teach it. Wow. Okay. So very few of them actually charge any money for doing it. They there's no necessary room and board, um, and generally each of the modules uh, after the first one, well, all of them have experience on land, but uh, basically, um, the fall and winter ones have have some rural rural all day field trips where they we learn stuff too. So it it works good. It's um it's a, it's a good system and it's sustainable by the group of us here and there's enough backups so that if somebody can't teach it this year, somebody else can teach it. Um, so. Yeah,
0: that's, that sounds great. Can I bug uh, ask you one more question about the fruit tree, um, sales and like maybe just distilled, like what have you learned over all these years? What works really well? What could be replicable for people elsewhere in the country or the continent?
1: Well, it's really, uh, there's several things one is that you need to have a very good idea of what actually produces what varieties what fruits second you need to have a source of this so you have to have willing wholesalers that will grow these things unless you can figure out how to you know you can sometimes figure out how to grow one or two of these things but fundamentally uh, we're talking about selling thousands of trees, right? and so, uh, you're not gonna do that with volunteers. This is, that's a money-making activity, and, um, the ideal thing is to get the nursery to do it on consignment, and, uh, this is something that you can do in certain ways under certain circumstances. And then the other thing is that you it, it really benefit from a large number of committees of volunteers to do aspects of it um, because there's about 10 or 12 tasks. And the short answer is that I or any of a couple of other people could talk to somebody from another city that wanted to do it and t- share a bunch of information about how to do it.
0: Okay. Yeah, that uh-huh. makes a lot of sense. Or put together a small, like, course on it that we could share with whomever something
1: like yes. that. Yes, yes, exactly. And That would,
0: um, that would be great. Um, this is it, a – go yeah. ahead.
1: No, just that it requires a lot of volunteers Yeah. And, uh, to do it easily.
0: Yes. Yeah, and joyfully, right, because you don't want it to be a task that just burns everybody out. You want it to be a good experience all the way around.
1: Yeah, for every every year, it was the people doing the sales. A lot of them were past permaculture graduates. <laughs> so so we'd have a kind of a reunion every year and sell a bunch of fruit trees. That sounds great. <laughs> but you're getting people to plant trees and take care of them and begin to appreciate what a tree can do. And a lot of people have got very busy lives find that growing a fruit tree is a lot easier than growing a vegetable that's right so yeah. uh, especially if it's the right fruit tree
0: yeah they'll have success almost guaranteed yeah all right well lovely let's hop into the third chapter here of the slides if you're ready yeah
1: so um design elements um <clears throat> this is uh obviously really important and uh, if you're trying to design a Organization. There's an enormous amount of information to this, and uh, didn't. uh, I'm just skimming some aspects of it that I want to share, but it's way more than that, of course. Uh, So the first one is to have the right situation, and um, the first one is motive. Why should people support your organization and um, my research mainly in anthropology says basically motive. Um, and we pick eventually, uh, having good sustainable food for everyone. And, uh, who would be opposed to that? Well, uh, you know, some people who are cynical might come up with a few possibilities, but mostly everybody likes the idea. Yes. The means are the tricky piece in some ways because um, we're talking about people growing it. Uh, Houston has got plenty of land. Land has never been the problem here the way it is in say San Francisco or New York. And um, the knowledge is not shared widely. So you need to figure out how you're going to actually get the knowledge out to people. And that's a tricky business, it turns out. And uh, and then the other one is make sure no one opposes it. And that's not as easy as you might think. Uh, nobody with any real power in the society opposes it at all, it turns out. But you may find a bunch of people who uh, left bad situations in the countryside and came to Houston to avoid farming, we're going to oppose it as far as their kids doing it. So, I mean, they're going to say you're crazy or something of that sort.
0: Yeah, or it's going to smell bad or something.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, there's just, think, you know, we lost our shirt on the dust bowl or we, we were migrant labor and we're sick of... Yeah. You know, or you know, then there's uh... Well, there's all sorts of bad stuff. So, that's the first thing to say is that you need to check your boxes on that. Then there is the question of how do you manage to organize a bunch of people? Uh, Mollison was, um, uh, some of us asked him about his bioregional organizing in the last chapter of his book. And, you know, as he said, well, people are very difficult. Um, it's not easy to do. Um, so here are some of my, uh, see, you know, so if you're going to put a fruit tree out, you know, you don't do it because you're hoping for salad. And, or at least that's probably not why you do it, or you don't do it because it necessarily has beautiful flowers, although some do, um. But it's the same with nonprofit supporters. There's a whole bunch of things that make them really great supporters. So I've got a bunch of them there, whatever that is, 12 of them. Um, uh, and I actually could come up with more, but that's all that fit on this page. And so um, anyway, uh, you want somebody who's got all of these characteristics, Um, and you're thinking to yourselves, I know, uh, well, who do I know that fits this, you know? And uh, so um, the point is that most supporters are not going to follow all this stuff. Um, And I've told people, well, suppose the person fits all of this stuff, but they aren't honest. Well, don't give them anything where they have to be honest. Right. (laughs) Uh, You know, I mean... If they can't work with other people, well, give them something to do by themselves. Uh, I mean, you know, hardworking, reliable, well-organized person that can't get along with people. Okay, put them, give them something to them to do.
0: Yeah, get them organizing something. They'll be great at it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Well, I mean, you know, just uh, we had we had a person uh, really good at. uh, doing designs. Any, anyhow, I, I just say that uh, try to use everybody if you possibly can. Uh, don't throw people away. Um, and all of the things we were doing had ways of attracting supporter sector energies. So not only does something like education have many other benefits and yields, but it also can yield you uh, amounts, money, labor, and uh, um, skill sets that uh, are helpful. And some of you may be familiar with asset-based community development, but It's basically this idea that people have all sorts of things they can offer to an organization if you just organize it and figure out what they are. And one of the things that we get out of having several different programs that you can't explain in an elevator is that you get all sorts of backup funding. Uh, One thing doesn't work this year uh, because of COVID. Other things are still bringing in money. Um, And so that's the first thing. The patterns. um, This is uh, from a Harvard Business Review article where they talk about how important analogies are in in developing uh, effective corporations that basically a person comes to an organization and they are not, they've been in other organizations, they've been in families, they've been all sorts of ways. And they say, well, this is like this thing that happened to me and, you know, wherever. And um, so they, they use the word like, and when you hear the word like, you know that they're talking about some pattern that they're advocating for. Um, This is like a business, so that means we're going to do things like a business. Um, And uh, there are plenty of these patterns, and in permaculture, we go from big patterns to to details. And uh, an analogy is a very useful strategy, it turns out, and we'll get to some in a minute. But um, those are cultural patterns and uh, if you pick the right one it'll motivate people recruit people you can explain what you're doing easier and uh, it tends to make things really work so the first one we tried which is what i'd say lots of permaculture people do and lots of other people do is well we'll just show them what a good example of this is and people will obviously learn from it and follow it. Um, and uh, so it's it's like an infectious disease, it's contagious. It's a contagion pattern and uh, we want it to go viral. So uh, all we have to do is come up with some good looking gardens and people will copy it. Um, And the neat thing, like in permaculture, is that if this is true, the thing's just going to spread, and we don't really have to do anything. Just put this thing out there in the neighborhood, and everybody will be doing it. And um, But it it is a very old idea, and it sort of works. Um, We're going to infect the neighborhood with uh, good examples, and maybe the virus will... Jump from one neighborhood to another, and so we uh, got a bunch of stuff done this way. Uh, we had um, many community gardens and school gardens emulated. Um, we um, we you build a nice permaculture food forest and show people about it and how it works, and people go out and they do it, and. Uh, So you really, uh, it does work in certain many situations and it did work for us. Uh, The Houston Independent School District uh, went big time into outdoor classrooms and they paid Urban Harvest to do it. Um, And the uh, donation system we did at food pantries uh, ended up spreading all over the country. Uh, I don't, you never know for sure that everybody got the idea here but it was some one of the I certainly never heard of it being anywhere else when we started doing it and um, several other cities have started fruit tree sales that uh, based on our information and what we've told them and all the surrounding counties around uh, around Houston uh, do them uh, city of Houston has a community garden program. Uh, they also adopted organic methods for their horticulture downtown. Um, and uh, organic methods are spread widely in green businesses and nurseries. Um, and uh, within a few years, uh, we had two, at least two dozen farmers markets in the area. Uh, really did spread but the other problem though is that there's some weaknesses here too one of them is that when we started community or school gardens there was a lot of learning curve and a lot of the folks doing it did not uh, produce quickly any kind of impressive garden. so none nobody wants to copy something full of weeds you had to learn how to do these gardens right. And that's a whole nother story. Yeah. And, uh, then there's a lot of people don't need, don't know they need a food garden, so they don't visit them. They don't get the idea at all. They can drive right past one and they don't even know it's there. And, um, Even when they do try to do it, the learning curve is high, and they don't do well with it. And uh, the worst part of it is that a lot of people came to Houston to avoid farming. And so their parents or grandparents said, don't do that. That's a dead end. So... um, Anyway, so part of the problem with contagion is it didn't really work very well. And um, so people tell you they don't have a green thumb. I'm sure if you garden a lot, you've run into that from people. And uh, it's basically an illiteracy complaint. I can't read. Math scares me, that kind of stuff. If you didn't have good teachers and didn't give good schools, you don't learn stuff. And, um, as I've said, I've been in maternity wards on three continents and I've never seen a baby with a green thumb. (laughs) They they do not get it. (laughs) And, um, so we decided to use a different analogy, the school system analogy. And, uh, this is basically a horticultural school system. That's the way we thought about it. Uh, maybe this webinar is a school is a school uh, pattern. But um, neighborhood horticultural elementary schools, a community of school gardens in neighborhoods, where people can learn how you grow a pear or prune a pear or whatever. Um, The high school version of this is multi-hour gardening classes. Um, Then all kinds of stuff for people in various occupations, Uh, permaculture for some people, uh, teachers learning how to teach in outdoor classrooms, farmers uh, learning how to uh, do organics, uh, landscaping, And even uh, the Rice University developed an insect ecology garden. So um, it works good. It's a good idea. And so a lot of strengths. um, One thing is that people understand the idea of trying to promote literacy. It's way easier to convince people to promote literacy than it is to tell them to spread contagion. Uh, they are, they have no idea how to really push something like this in a neighborhood. Whereas the schooling thing makes a certain amount of sense. You have a neighborhood school. And um, if you point out that the problem is that we don't have good schools and we don't have good teachers and the neighborhoods, then they say, well, we need to do something about this because the consequences are disastrous. So uh, especially for children, we found it really uh, a much better uh, meme or pattern or analogy or whatever you want to call it. Um, And these things spread many different directions. Uh, One of the things that happened was that some of the ideas about water and permaculture got translated into local uh, anti-flooding policies. A number of uh, regional parks around here are basically flood um, impoundment areas that try to prevent flooding. And uh, it's gone, some of the stuff spread all the way around the country, um, just basically because of people taking up the ideas. Um, anyway, um, we had all sorts of things that happened as a result of this kind of literacy effort. But there's things that don't happen. So. Our idea, you remember, was to spread this stuff out across a hundred mile diameter. And uh, that's a tremendous amount of people and a tremendous amount you're trying to touch. And uh, there are all sorts of people in that group, uh, different wealth levels, where they live, uh, all sorts of languages, just many, many things like this. So, um, anyway, we um found that uh a bunch of people managed to ignore this nevertheless this is the simplest way of putting it so that's the basic problem you know the school system the people are kind of required to go to school that's not true with a, anything like a community garden or whatever so so uh how do you reach the the people out there that are not that interested, and uh, we have this in permaculture. There's a lot of people that aren't that concerned about whether we will have uh, sustainability or not. So it's um, so. How do you do this? Well, one of the things that worked well was the farmers' market, because it turns out most people like to eat well. <laughs> And uh, eating well is different from growing food so you can eat well. And so um, one of the things we found was that uh, by having farmers markets, uh, it was educating a lot of people from rural areas who brought food in to sell. And uh, secondly, a lot of people that went to farmers markets realized that people were actually making money doing this and got interested in growing it even in in inner city um, because they could sell it. And we figured people were making two to five times minimum wage, which is not wealthy, but it's still better than a lot of uh, dead end jobs.
0: Yeah, it's enticing
1: yeah so uh this this uh helped us and then Oba, the, uh, both before it left urban harvest and after it um, became independent it helped uh a whole lot of people in green businesses understand much better how to reduce the water costs how to improve soil how to grow plants easier and better and more uh uh, regeneratively, and uh, we've had Elaine a, a Ingham, the soil food scientist, uh, in three different times now at OBA, and uh, so it, it has a big effect on a whole lot of people that would be very hard for us to reach, uh, wealthy estates, large corporations, HOAs, and so on. Uh, So those are some of the patterns ideas
0: those are really really good bob thank you for that
1: now the zones um this is just a brief thing here uh one of the things you want to do of course when you do a permaculture design is think about how much labor commitment you're putting into whatever it is in the out there in a uh, landscape. And the same question you have to ask in an organization. What, what is taking up a lot of labor and what isn't? And uh, how do you want to organize this so as you get the most efficiency out of what labor you have? And in organizations, um, you have a certain amount of paid labor and a certain amount of supporter labor and so then the question is well if you had supporters organized say into a committee could they do something or rather reliably that needs to be done without bothering staff at all so your zoning is a is an effort to organize labor in such a way as it's maximally efficient you get the most done the best way and volunteers are able to do things uh, Adequately. Now, this is a diagram we created about 2005 or so, um, and um, essentially it starts in the center there with things that you're spending a bunch of money on and putting a lot of labor into, and whereas uh, planning development might not be all staff, it might take a lot of staff time to do it like if you were, say, organizing a strategic plan. And um, basically what it does is like any zoning map, it moves out to less and less staff effort, um, less and less labor from the staff as to getting something done, and we had, in, at least at that time, market gardening and farming, education for adults and youth and community gardens as being the three main programs. And uh, you see some things that are in, in, the, in between, uh, say, uh, training for market growers. is an education effort, and it's a farmer's market effort. So uh, that was uh, essentially what we ended up with with a, a labor zone. But the basic idea is that you can create a labor zone map for a cor- for an organization, and do it based on how much time commitment you need. Yeah, that's good. Anyway, yields. Um, that's the interesting thing. Uh, so one, there's a bunch of, uh, there's a whole lot of stuff on yields. I, if I got into the yields of some of these programs, it would take me another bunch of time to, to get into it. And uh, each of those things, is like school gardens, is a whole talk in itself. For example, but. Um, could you get more yields than you're getting out of each program? that's the kind of question how how could you do that could you get yields by connecting programs together what could you get yields that would be self-sustaining with a minimum of paid labor Those are all permaculture questions. Um, Because if you got a volunteer committee doing something that took virtually no staff time or money that you had to bring into the organization to get it done, uh, you would get a lot done with very little um, uh, resources being expended. So uh, here are just some of the urban harvest supporter sector energies to be harvested. And they're just some of them. They're not anywhere near all of it. But uh, you know, if you do the classes situation, the school district gives you money. Um, adults pay money for classes. Uh, the charity will maybe help you uh, do things, like they'll help build a garden at a school in a low-income neighborhood. Uh, All kinds of volunteers develop from taking classes. Um, Fruit tree sales uh, uh, will go up. So you can, in education classes, you can tell people about how to grow fruit trees and then they uh, will uh, probably buy fruit trees and do them and they may even end up teaching pruning for you. And... uh, then there's permaculture design skills you get out of this education, and you can bring those back into these other uh, programs that you're doing. So, I mean, there's plenty of these uh, supporter sector energies to be harvested if you bother to collect them at these different uh, programs. Now, this is a complicated one, but it's the idea is fairly simple. And this is from an article I wrote in 2013 in an anthropology book. But uh, it's function stacking and labor allocation by program. So the programs are up here at the top, uh, sideways printing, uh, community gardens, schools, market farming, adult classes, fundraising, oversight, outreach, landscaping efforts, permaculture efforts, fruit tree sales. So those are all basically programs. And then there are possible functions that you get out of it, like community development, health and nutrition, science education, sustainable economic development, um, and the, the impact on your income. Do you get money from it or do you lose money from it and so on? And uh, then this is broken down by labor zones, and these things just stand for very high. So something like this says that food security is, uh, you get a very, it's a very high yield from market farming effort. And uh, food security itself doesn't get you hardly any money, it turns out unfortunately. Um, So um, anyway, that's basically what we did. And there's a bunch of footnotes here that explain what some of this is about. But the point is that uh, you can create a list of what it is that you're trying to get out of the programs you're doing. You can run it across a table of the various programs you're doing in an organization and try to determine what you're getting. And if the answer here is that that you are uh, getting uh, very little horticultural literacy from something you're doing, like here you're getting um, very little from market farming, could you get more horticulture, horticultural literacy from market farming? Well, maybe you could. So it raises this question, uh, how how much more yield could you get out of the fact you are doing market farming stuff and uh, you are trying to teach hort literacy? Maybe you could be doing more of this than you are. So. Yep. It, Yeah, so that's basically the idea. Yep. And these are just the last couple of slides. Um, So we started trying to connect programs with each other. So this is youth education stuff and the fruit tree sale. And we got these high school kids uh, helping people, assisting them uh, moving their fruit trees and so on and and learning some stuff about the fruit trees they were selling, and so on. And uh, so that's a connection that we created, and we're getting a yield out of the connection, is I guess what I'm trying to say here. Yeah. And this is another one where the school children uh, were involved in selling some stuff at the farmer's market, and uh, One of the things that happens in this situation is you get some fascinating uh, demographic differences uh, in who is going to public school and who is shopping at the farmer's market and so on. And uh, so we get yields out of the connections as well as uh, people learning about the farmer's market and people learning about neighborhood schools. Uh, So there's a lot of things going on here that are useful. Um, And then the other question is, uh, brought up is, can you create an organization that will support permaculture community across the continent? And that's what uh, Jude Hobbs and The others that started PINA in 2012 had as a vision. And uh, I've been trying to help it, and I hope you will too.
0: Yeah, and I've been hoping you will too as well, and one of the best ways to do that is to become a member. You get access to a media library and all sorts of supports as a member. Um, and it can be pretty cheap, 20 bucks a year, sort of thing. So, if you're interested, go on over to pina.in to learn more. Uh, Bob, that was so wonderful. And I do, I, I'm curious how you are taking your knowledge from all these years and work with Urban Harvest and others, and where you see not just pina going, but permaculture going in the next, I don't know, 10, 20 years. Like, are you feeling hopeful? Do you feel like it's moving in the right direction? Are we needing to make collect um, connections that maybe we haven't as a permaculture movement or even as more more small scale, does pina need to make more specific connections, follow the contagion pattern, follow the schooling pattern more? What are you thinking when you put all that together and then you look forward, how does it add up for you?
1: Yeah, <laughs> well, it's a good question and, uh, I, it's been encouraging uh, because looking at where this was in 2010, 2012, it's just an idea the head of a few people. And uh, even when I got on uh, in 2016, uh, we were a very small organization. We had a quarter-time employee, I think. And uh, when I, th- you know that's paid staff but it's in terms of skill sets we had an enormous repertoire of skills
0: yeah
1: and people stretched across the continent and permaculture is a really amazing thing and it is hard to know exactly because what part what's going on is our capacity to do this and if you that you know, we could do more with more resources and the resources seem to be gradually increasing fairly rapidly at this point. But the more we have, the better we can do. But the other side of this is what is happening to the world at the same time. And uh, I think most people have probably seen that this summer I've been working on climate issues since around 1990. and. you know, this summer is really looking bad across the world, um, and uh, the I've often said that the best lobbyist for a permanent culture approaches is Gaia. Uh, Gaia is telling everybody, "You better get your act together." <laughs> anyway, uh, so uh, it's hard to know, but if. You know, we we have actual solutions. We have ideas. Uh, There's so many things that we can do in city and in country and in suburbs that we aren't doing, and the amount of energy that's being wasted is just uh, phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, you know, people say, "Well, you know, we need to go electric, and we need to do this, and we do," but at the same time, we need to stop just frivolously wasting stuff and uh the and we need policies that do that and we're probably not going to get them until we have a lot of people that want them
0: yep
1: so uh, but i mean i live in a hot climate and um, our energy bills for that first six months of the year are a little bit just about 140 dollars. i would say So and in the city. Yeah. So um, anyway, but uh, people need, I mean, we can do way more if we work together than if we don't. That's a short answer. Yep.
0: Yep. I agree with that. And I was just looking on Google Trends a couple days ago, and I noticed that the word permaculture itself had a huge spike in interest. And I was like, Oh, when was that? And guess what year it was 2020, right? So as things in the environment, and you know, ecological devastation, and all the horrible things that our our consumer culture continues to sort of like deliver us, I think, unfortunately, those those emergencies, those calamities, those tragedies will lead more and more people to permaculture as just a sensible way forward as a species as a hopefully an intelligent species on this planet. Um, When I first studied permaculture, it just seemed to me like the most obvious thing in the world, like, oh yes, well, this should just be policy. This should be taught in high school and middle school and government should implement this. But I recognize there are many old legacy systems and moneyed interests that are in the way of that. So my thinking is permaculture just needs to keep working together, like you say, hanging yeah. out on the edges a little bit of society where where you never know what may tip or what may really usher in yeah. permaculture into a bigger sort of seat at the table.
1: Yep. And uh, I all, all I can say is that my experience is that there are a large number of people who will help a uh, organization that's doing good things uh for free they will do that for free but it is way more effective if there's a core group of people that are getting paid to do it yeah and that they they can help those volunteers those supporters way better so uh i'm in favor of getting a significant amounts of resources into pina yeah um and That will make it much more likely that the uh, non-paid supporters will uh, get more done. Mm -hmm. And that tends to breed itself. People say, look, I've been working with, I've been volunteering with Pina and look at all we got done in the last two years. And then they tell their, they tell other people and, and it builds
0: yeah and it's like that contagion model you shared too like when the garden is all weedy and kind of not looking good it's not very contagious you know or it's a turn off but if we have the resources within pina to do really good work and showcase it that is attractive and people are inspired by that so I, yeah. i'm with you let's let's try to find those resources ongoingly and bob this is great obviously we could do many more webinars and you know, like we could do a whole thing on the fruit tree. We could do a whole thing on community gardens. Um, Your wealth of experience is something that we want to tap into more without overtaxing your energy or your time. (laughs) But thank you so much for this. This is fantastic. I'll put this up on the members portal in Pina uh, within the week or so, because this is really important for people who who are in their own nonprofit or starting their own permaculture business, or even just as a, you know, an update to what they may already be doing in their permaculture yeah. businesses. Lots of great ideas here. So thank you so much for your time, Bob. Any
1: final words that you want to leave us with? Oh, uh, let's see. I, I'm not, n- nothing really. I'm kind of talked out at this point, but I, uh, yep, fair I enough. really appreciate all the efforts people make to uh, make this a better world. It's important to do uh I have an eleven-year-old grandson, and he's going to probably he may well be alive in twenty-one hundred, and you know, so it's 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 something that you you know say to yourself. uh, uh, We need to do what we can, you know. Yeah, we really do.
0: Yeah, Gloria says great information. Thanks, Bob. (laughs) Thank You you. Oh, and we have Suzanne there too. So she says, uh, I'll I'll put her comment here. Fab, rich and inspirational conversation. Thank you, Suzanne. Awesome. Appreciate you. So yeah, we're all very thankful, Bob, and let's do it again sometime. Um, Mm -hmm. I really appreciate you and we'll, uh, we'll see you around. Okay. Thanks a lot. Have a great night. Night.